Well, election season is upon us again. We've all already endured the news of the first Iowa straw poll ahead of us. Fourteen months of pondering the choice of presidential candidates who seem to excite nobody who you ever meet. And it feels that once again, all of us are left in a position where we want to feel inspired, we want to believe in something, and nobody is showing up to do the job. And I find myself thinking about a candidate I met during the last presidential election. This wasn't anybody who made it big. His name was Chuck Weislaw. He was a retired professor of electronics engineering, running for office as a Republican in a mostly Democratic district of East San Jose. I met him at the Republican National Convention in San Diego, standing in the afternoon sun, wearing a red, white, and blue bicentennial tie. He had never run for office before this. And talking to him, you could tell. I mean, he was so much more emotionally present than any normal political candidate who you meet. He looked you in the eye. When you asked him a question, he actually answered it. And he had none of that robotic, not-quite-human pod-people affect that so many candidates end up having. I retired a tenured professorship to run for office. So I could have been secure in academia, right, as a tenured professor. And why are you doing this? I love my country. I come from a really humble background, and my country has been, it has given me opportunity that all I had to do was take advantage of it. I'm the son of a coal miner. Are you somebody who's always wanted to run for office? You've always toyed with it in the back of your mind? No. When did the idea come into your head? Well, I, I had a family meeting, my daughter and the son. They're grown, college-educated, off on their own. My wife and I got together, and I says, I says to my kids, I says, I looks like I might want to take an early retirement. And so uh, my and daughter says, why don't you run for office? And I says, you've got to be kidding. And I says, do you know what is involved with running for office? You know, the mudslinging and the long hours and whatever, you know. Then all of a sudden, my daughter came up to me, and she says, and this is what turned my mind, she says... This is our country. We love it. If not you, who then? If not you, who then? And that's when you decided? Yeah. He was spending $60,000 of his own retirement money to do this. And like a lot of people I met at the Republican convention, what was most striking about Chuck Weisler was his idealism. He seemed completely sincere about what he was doing. This is the puzzle of the American political system. It's filled with lots of profoundly idealistic people working at all levels. And yet, it does not seem to produce idealistic candidates. I mean, what's the most inspiring thing you've ever heard Al Gore say? Or George Bush Jr.? Or Elizabeth Dole? today on our radio program as we head into another election season to keep us all from feeling dispirited by the staged media events, the negative ads, the issues that have all been pre-tested in focus groups. We bring you stories of political idealists, stories to make us all feel some small sense of hope about politics in America. All of these stories taken from election coverage we did four years ago here on This American Life. WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. At one of our show today, Upside Down World, 
We have a campaign diary from Michael Lewis from four years ago about a politician you will be hearing a lot about in the next few weeks and months. And the story of a moment when the opposite of normal politics became normal politics. Act two, kiss and tell. A Walter Mondale voting gay rights supporting unrepentant liberal signs up as a Republican Party member and ends up a party functionary, a delegate to the state Republican convention where he wreaks havoc. Act three, Pete and repeat. How California Governor Pete Wilson's anti-immigrant policies found some supporters among immigrants themselves. We hear an explanation of the profoundly idealistic notion of self-deportation. Act four, throwing money at the problem. You may recall a best-selling book from a few years ago called There Are No Children Here, about two boys growing up in Chicago's Henry Horner public housing projects. Well, those projects were across the street from the site of the 1996 Democratic Convention here in Chicago. And when the convention came to town, money poured in for a makeover of the neighborhood. One of the kids from the book, now grown up, gave us a tour, showing us what got fixed up and how the real improvements in the neighborhood all happened beneath the normal political radar. Stay with us. Heck one. Upside Down World. We begin our program with this story of national politics as it is almost never practiced. To Michael Lewis, his campaign diaries from the last presidential race were some of the most evocative and original reporting anybody did. His stories were novelistic, often very funny. This next story, which was first published in the New Republic magazine, put Arizona Senator John McCain on the map for a lot of people in a way that he had never been before. It coincided with and it boosted a rise to national notoriety for McCain, who, of course, has now become a Republican presidential candidate himself. Here's Michael's dispatch. April the 19th. I leave my hotel earlier than I need to and walk down from the Washington Monument to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Even at 7.30 in the morning, the mall is nearly deserted, the Lincoln Memorial empty. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, on the other hand, is teeming with people who appear to have been up for hours, walking slowly along the length of the black marble slab bearing the names of the dead. For the next 20 minutes, I sit on a bench dodging bird droppings and waiting for Senator John McCain, who has agreed to meet me here. In my attempts to spot him at a distance, I can't help but notice how differently ordinary people behave from politicians. Maybe 50 likely candidates pass through my line of vision, and not one of them could pass for a U.S. senator at 100 paces. They comb their hair in public, scratch themselves, hold hands. At eight on the button, McCain appears at my side, looking very senatorial except for a pair of outrageously wide black aviator sunglasses with some undignified name, Hobby, Hippo, stenciled on the earpiece. McCain is the dole surrogate most in demand as a speaker around the country, and it's not hard to see why. What matters most to the people who wish to see McCain speak for Dole is the formative experience that the two senators ostensibly share. Both nearly died in a war. Both endured indescribable pain and suffering. Dole's ordeal is at the center of his national campaign. To some extent, it is his campaign. McCain's trials are less known. On October 26, 1967, when he ejected out of his Navy jet and into a North Vietnamese mob, McCain suffered two broken arms, a shattered knee and shoulder, 
and bayonet wounds in his ankle and groin. Robert Timberg's gripping book, The Nightingale's Song, depicts McCain two months later in his first prison cell. McCain weighed less than 100 pounds. His hair, flecked with gray since high school, was nearly snow white. Clots of food clung to his face, neck, hair, and beard. His cheeks were sunken, his neck chicken-like, his legs atrophied. McCain survived in captivity without medical treatment for the next five years, enduring torture so exquisite that even to read about it causes sweat to pop out on your brow. His captors would hang him by his broken arms from dangling ropes for hours on end, for instance. But the astonishing part of McCain's experience was its voluntary aspect. McCain is the third generation of a distinguished military family. His father was an admiral during the Vietnam War. The North Vietnamese hoped that this famous prisoner of war would violate U.S. military policy, which dictated that prisoners be returned in the order they arrived. If he accepted their offer of freedom, McCain would testify to the demoralization of the American troops. For five and a half years, his captors tried to torture him into going home. For five and a half years, he refused to go. We walk alongside the black granite slab against the oncoming traffic, then back again. The Park Service says that the memorial has become the second most frequently visited site in Washington, after the Capitol. McCain admits that at first he found it depressing and even faintly antagonistic. But one day he was passing through on his own, he visits often by himself, and discovered a couple of veterans running their hands across the inscribed names. Clearly the two men had never met before, but they had fallen into conversation, swapped war stories, and in a few minutes were clutching each other and weeping. If that kind of healing goes on, says McCain, well, then it's a good thing. Someone once said that an explanation is where the mind comes to rest. There is a feeling about McCain, one that seems lacking in Dole, that he has somehow explained his own experience to himself. He has assimilated his trauma differently than the candidate he's behind. He says, This is the McCain theory, and I think it's valid. I was an adult when I was shot down, 31 years old. I'd had a whole life. He was 19. What were you like when you were 19? I believe that everything Bob Dole has done since the war was dictated by that experience. The Vietnam veteran has achieved a kind of equanimity that is supposed to be reserved only for veterans of good wars. When Clinton arrived at the White House, for instance, McCain sent him a note saying that any time the president wished to walk down to the Vietnam's veteran memorial, the senator from Arizona would be glad to walk alongside him. Clinton sent back a nice note. Recalling this exchange causes McCain to break his rhythm. We are walking back towards the bench and McCain is limping slightly, like a high school football star. He is remembering something else. I don't know if you want to write about this, he begins. Back in the mid-80s, a guy who protested the war came into my office. He said his name was David Ifshin. In December 1970, David Ifshin had led a group of American students to Hanoi, where he delivered an anti-war radio address to American soldiers engaged in attacks on North Vietnam. Like other anti-American propaganda, his program was piped into McCain's prison cell from 6 in the morning until 9 at night. But McCain, who can generate anger in a heartbeat, shows not the faintest trace of resentment. He explains, 
Ifshin stood in my office and he says, I came here to tell you I made a mistake. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And I said to him, Look, I accept your apology. We'll be friends. But more importantly, I want you to forget it. Go on with your life. You cannot look back. Here he pauses, and I figure he's finished. But he's groping behind his aviator sunglasses for the point of his anecdote that forgiveness is ultimately less self destructive than the bitter desire for revenge. Or perhaps that there is no such thing as revenge. Five months ago, David Ifshin was diagnosed with cancer. The cancer has proved untreatable and has spread rapidly. David Ifshin is now dying. He is 47 years old and has a wife and three young children. Says McCain, when I heard about it, it did pass through my mind. Suppose I had told David Ifshin to get the hell out of my office. How would I feel about myself now? April 23rd. I'm walking out the door of my Washington apartment on my way to find David Ifshin when John McCain calls. I've made the mistake of telling his press secretary what I'm up to, and she's passed it along to the senator, who is seriously concerned. He says, Look, I don't mean to insult you, but be careful with this. If you wrote anything that hurt David or Gail or the kids, I'd never forgive myself. I'd forgive you, but I wouldn't forgive myself. It's a half hour drive out of Washington to the Ifshin's house in the Maryland suburbs, where I find a gaunt, bearded man stretched out on a patio lounge chair. Attended by his wife, Gail. This afternoon he's tired, and his voice is barely audible as he sketches his political career. The cover of Life magazine of April 23, 1971, shows David Ifshin, age 22, at a war rally, wearing a collegiate goatee. He's standing directly behind Jane Fonda, who has her fist raised. After his war protests, he worked on a kibbutz. But when he returned to America, he also returned to national politics. He went on to work on the Mondale campaign and, to a storm of protest, was even tapped to head the Dukakis transition team. He spent 10 years as general counsel to AIPAC, the Israeli lobby. He had met Clinton briefly in 1972. 20 years later, when Clinton ran for president, Ifshin became general counsel for his campaign. Before he accepted the job, however, he told Clinton he'd been attacked for his war record each time he'd joined a presidential campaign. He says, I brought it up with Clinton deliberately, and he said he knew what I'd done and he admired it then, and that he still admired it now. These days, Clinton calls Ifshin two or three times each week, even when he's traveling. A few months ago, the Ifshin family spent the night in the Lincoln bedroom. In the pictures of Clinton playing with the Ifshin children, The president's ruddy good health seems almost obscene besides Ifshin's drawn face. Yet, when I called him, David Ifshin did not hesitate to rise to the occasion. He says, I'm very proud of this story, and it's never been written. I asked him about his feelings towards McCain. He says, One of our true political heroes. He's a giant. Ifshin's version of their story differs from McCain's in its important details and in its spirit. The way McCain tells it, Ifshin is the hero. He decided he'd made a mistake and bravely took responsibility for his actions. 
The way Ifshin tells it, McCain is the hero. As I listen to him, I realize that this is the reverse of the usual Washington investigation, in which the reporter visits each interested party to collect the dirt on the adversary. Here is a case where each is needed to explain the other's nobility of spirit. I have never heard two political allies, much less two political opponents, cast each other in a more flattering light. Ifshin begins, I had always wanted to apologize, but didn't know who to apologize to. His moment to act, he decided, came at an APAC meeting around 1986 at the Washington Hilton. Ifshin spotted Senator John McCain at a distance and decided that he was the man who deserved the apology. Ifshin says, I hoisted up my courage and went over to him, and before I could get a word out, McCain says, I owe you an apology. A couple of years earlier, during the 1984 presidential campaign, McCain had given a speech in which he attacked Ifshin's war record. Basically, someone had handed him a script, says Ifshin, and he read it. He was sorry he did it and said he wouldn't do that kind of thing again. Then he asked me to stop by his office, which I did, and normally wouldn't do. It was blind fate, I told him at that time. I said, I owed you an apology and you robbed me of the chance to make it. And he was characteristically modest and humble about it. Later that year, McCain and Ifshin, together with a Vietnamese emigre named Don Van Toy, established the Institute for Democracy in Vietnam. Ifshin shifts painfully in his chair and stops to catch his breath. It was at the Vietnam's Veteran Memorial that what he calls the second half of the story with McCain began. On Memorial Day of 1993, Bill Clinton spoke at the site. Both McCain and Ifshin were present. Clinton was cheered loudly. He was also heckled. And one of the hecklers waved a sign that said, Tell us about Ifshin. Four weeks later, Ifshin found himself on a flight to Washington with McCain, who motioned for him to take the seat beside him. Ifshin says, He asked why I hadn't taken a job in the administration. I said this and that. We played 20 questions until finally he said, it's because of that stupid sign, isn't it? And I said, yes, partly it was. And he said, come to my office tomorrow morning and we'll settle this thing once and for all. The next day, June 30th, 1993, David Ifshin turned up in John McCain's office in the Russell Senate office building to find that the senator had drafted a letter, which he entered later that day in the congressional record. It began by praising Clinton's Memorial Day address on behalf of Vietnam's veterans. The veterans, McCain wrote, were very impressed by Clinton's determination to offer an eloquent tribute to their service when it would have been far easier for him to have avoided the event altogether. McCain decried the behavior of the protesters. Then he moved on. Among the demonstrators that day, one individual held a sign which asked the president to explain his association with a person known to many of our colleagues, Mr. David Ifshin. Tell us about Ifshin, it read. My other purpose in speaking today is to do just that. I want to talk about David Ifshin. David Ifshin is my friend. This declaration may come as a shock to those people whose perception of David... Well, in the weeks after that was published, David Ishin died, and John McCain became a leading vice presidential contender after Jack Kemp. 
It was John McCain who nominated Bob Dole, gave the speech for that at the Republican National Convention. And Michael Lewis ran into McCain on Election Day. It was funny. The, the, the Dole campaign, everywhere you went with the Dole campaign, senators and governors would come out of the woodwork because they wanted to have their picture taken and show support, all the rest, uh, until the final day. And they all cleared out. No senators or governors were traveling with him. There was one person at his side, and it was John McCain. And uh, I was in Russell, Kansas, when the Dole campaign came through. And I, was, I noticed this. I saw McCain kind of off to one side. Uh, he'd, been, he'd been with Dole all day. And I went up to talk to him. And he said, uh, he said to me almost apologetically, he said, you know, I wouldn't be here if I thought he was going to win. Uh, and I knew that. I mean, he, he was there because, because he knew that it was Dole's time of need. And it was time for someone to step up. And this is what's so curious about McCain. I mean, I think that he, he, he continually, as I, as I covered this campaign, I was new to politics when I came into this campaign. I'd never written about politics. Uh, I, I found that McCain sort of restored my faith in the process again and again. That there was something about his, um, uh, how should I put it? There was, it, it was his willingness to stick his neck out for a losing or an unpopular cause that was so different from most of the people who do what he does for a living, so so different from the ordinary political attitude that was refreshing and, um, and inspiring. Michael Lewis, his campaign diaries from the 1996 race are collected in his book Trail Fever, John McCain is now running for the Republican presidential nomination. Well, now, I'm not a big politician. Hell, I don't want to be. Why, I wouldn't be the president if the whole world voted for me. They say I'd have to get the... Act two, Kiss and Tell. Now this story of political idealism, political activism, and political deceit. Hello, my name is Dan Savage, and I am the Republican Party in my neighborhood. I am the Republican Precinct Committee Officer, PCO, for Precinct 1846 in the 43rd District in Seattle, Washington. If you have any questions about the Republican Party, our platform, or any of our candidates, feel free to give me a call. Now, I should point out here that Dan Savage is not just a Republican Precinct Committee Officer. He's also a gay sex columnist, a drag queen, and someone who agrees with none of the principles of the Republican Party. Now, you're probably wondering how a commie pinko drag fag sex advice columnist found a home in the hate-mongering, gay-bashing, neo-fascist Republican Party. Well, let me tell you something, pal. The Republican Party is a big tent, a huge tent. There were no ideological litmus tests at the Republican Party caucuses or conventions that I attended. I didn't have to produce a voter registration card or a picture ID even at my very first caucus, a measure, I believe, of the respect the Republican Party has for the rights of the individual. I just walked through the door, signed on the dotted line. Dan Savage certifies that he, she, considers himself, herself a Republican, and that was it. Who knew that going over to the dark side could be so simple? Okay, here's the story. Back when Pat Buchanan was posting first and second place showings in Republican primaries this year, Dan Savage got it into his head that the only way to change a political party that he not only disagreed with but also hated and feared was to sign up and change it from the inside. So he showed up at his local Republican caucus, which in the 43rd is a small group of Republican holdovers in a big gay neighborhood. And at this point, his story took a surprising turn. 
Once he arrived, he found out that because he was the only person from the little precinct that he lives in, each caucus is divided up into, you know, a lot of little precincts. Because of that, he was automatically made a precinct committee officer and then automatically won a seat at the county Republican convention. Well, he wrote up the experience that he had at the caucus in the most damning um, partisan tone (laughs) humanly possible and published it in the paper. But... As he found out, his adventure had barely begun. A couple of weeks after I'd traveled over to the dark side, Daniel Mead Smith, chairman of the 43rd Republican Party, wrote me a letter. I think you'll be surprised that the hate-mongering, gay-bashing, neo-fascist Republican Party does not exist in the 43rd, Smith wrote. I invite you to come to one of our meetings and see for yourself. So I went to one of Smith's meetings to see for myself, the 43rd District Republican Caucus. I arrived at the Montlake Community Center for the 1996 43rd District Republican Caucuses at 8 a.m. I paid my $5, signed in, grabbed a seat, and waited for the work to begin. We were there to elect delegates to the state Republican convention coming up Memorial Day weekend and vote on non-binding resolutions. The caucus began with a prayer. We asked God to guide us in selecting delegates, and then we were ready to pledge allegiance to the flag. Only trouble was no one brought a flag. I thought about suggesting we pledge allegiance to the fag, hey, that's me, but I didn't want to be disruptive. Someone found some red, white, and blue bunting in the back room, tossed it over an easel, and we pledged allegiance to that. The easel was needed post-pledge, so the red, white, and blue bunting to which we had just pledged our allegiance was tossed on the floor. We had to elect delegates before we could get to the resolutions. I won't bore you with the Roberts Rules of Order stuff or the impossibly convoluted process by which the 80 of us in that cramped, steeple-roofed, fluorescent-lit room elected 17 delegates to the state Republican convention. Suffice to say, it was crushingly dull. To entertain us while we waited for the ballots to be counted four times, Republican Party activists and candidates gave little speeches. Some of these speeches were pure fantasy. One woman read a prepared speech about the United Nations working in concert with abortionists to take over the country. The other recurring fantasy had to do with us, 43rd District Republicans, retaking the 43rd for the Republican Party. One man reminisced about the time not too long ago when the 43rd was a solidly Republican district. We can make this district Republican again, just like it was when I joined the party 25 years ago. All we have to do is get out there and doorbell and identify the voters in this district who are sympathetic to our issues. Heart pounding, I stuck my hand in the air. Have any of you been out of the house or walked down Broadway in the last 25 years, I asked, standing and looking around at the toughest crowd I've probably ever played. The 43rd district, I pointed out, had gone all gay all of a sudden. So long as the Republican Party was identified with homophobes and anti-gay bigot activists, the Republican Party could kiss the 43rd District goodbye. When I sat down, a little old lady sitting behind me pointed out that she knew a very nice gay couple in the Republican Party. In other words, she, and by extension the party, was not homophobic, and I was wrong. She said to me, the party isn't against gay people, that's just a false impression you have. Gee, I wonder where I could have picked up that false impression. Maybe from Jesse Helms, Bob Dornan, Bob $1,000 Dole, anti-gay rights rallies in Iowa during the primaries attended by all the Republican presidential hopefuls, even moderate Lamar Alexander, 
Pat Robertson, Ralph Reed, Newt Gingrich, Linda Smith, Ellen Craswell, Spokane County Coroner Dexter Ammond, the Washington State Legislature, state legislatures all across the country, the Christian Coalition. During a break, an attractive middle-aged man approached me. He was a little angry. I was offended by you forcing me to take responsibility for Jesse Helms, as if the Republican Party isn't responsible for Jesse Helms. One woman wanted to know why she should support gay people since gay people didn't support her when her home was burned down by arsonists. The arsonists weren't gay or anything, but where were gay people when she needed them? Another pointed out that some gays had broken the windows of the Republican Party headquarters, so who's oppressing who? Another man took me aside during a break to let me know that the gay bashing within the Republican Party wasn't for real. It was only to get out the vote and motivate the front lines. Well then, I guess that makes it okay. I'm happy to be vilified and scapegoated and denied my civil rights so long as it motivates people to go to the polls. Disenfranchisement is a small price to pay to increase voter turnout. To his surprise, at this meeting, Dan Savage talked the caucus into approving a resolution that affirmed the rights of gays and lesbians and rejected elements of the party who would exploit fear and hatred of homosexuals for short-term political gain. He could not wait after this victory to get to the county convention. As an official delegate, Dan Savage would be allowed to vote there. He'd be allowed to make amendments. He would really be allowed to play a role. He planned to vote in the straw polls they have at, at these things for the most conservative Republican candidates. In this case, Pat Buchanan for president and for the governor of Washington state, he was going to vote for Ellen Craswell, who opposes gun control and gay rights and moral decay and who he loathes. Dan Savage's thinking was that the more extreme the Republican ticket would end up being, the more likely they would lose in the general election and the more likely that the party would eventually abandon this more conservative wing. A few weeks later, the big day arrived, the King County Republican Convention, my first major party function. Hats, speeches, amendments. I bounded out of bed at 7 a.m. and ran to meet my new friend Steve at the QFC on Broadway. Steve attended his precinct caucuses way back in March with the intention of getting himself elected a delegate to the county and state Republican conventions. Like me, he joined the Republican Party out of a sincere desire to move the GOP to the center. Kindred spirits, we decided to attend the county convention together. The doors opened at 7.30 a.m. After the crowd settled down, a preacher read an alarming opening invocation, which pretty much set the tone for what was to come. Please forgive our leaders for endorsing perversion, and God deliver us from spineless compromise. Then we bellowed the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I slipped up to the merchandise tables on the second floor where I bought myself a red, white, and blue Craswell for Governor hat. It must have been fate. On my way back down from the merchandise tables, I ran smack dab into Ellen Craswell herself. I said hello and, looking very serious in my little red, white, and blue hat, asked, What are we going to do about the homosexual problem, Miss Craswell? What is the final solution to all this homosexual nonsense? So long as they stay inside, we can let them alone, Ellen Craswell confided in me. But when they organize and demand special rights, we must oppose them. We can't give special rights to something that is an abomination in the eyes of God. 
Now, Ellen didn't seem interested in elaborating on just what it is we're supposed to stay inside of. The closet, our apartments, the priesthood. So I said goodbye, promising to vote for her in the primary. You see, the better Ellen does in the primary, the better the Democratic candidate for governor will do in the fall. I made it back to the convention floor just in time for the opening of debate on the party platform. The King County Republican platform is a document drawn up by committee that lays out what the King County Republican Party stands for. And here's the beautiful part. Delegates are allowed to propose amendments. Once an amendment is proposed, the amendment sponsor is allowed to speak, followed by a few people in favor, a few opposed. After that, the sponsor gets another minute or so to address the floor. I was a delegate. I had amendments, and so I would get to address the convention over and over and over again. And as amendments are time-consuming, determined delegates can grind the convention to a halt. The first section we were to vote on was the preamble in which we acknowledged God to be our creator and the family as the foundation of our culture. We embraced free markets, recognized that tax and regulatory burdens are a threat to our freedoms, yada, yada, yada. Before we could vote on the preamble, and it hadn't occurred to me to amend the preamble, a delegate proposed that a line be added stating that the party was open to all who accept its basic principles regardless of race, religion, sex, or national origin. After debate, the first resolution of the day passed by a distressingly narrow margin. Race, creed, sex, national origin, something was missing. Steve approached the microphone and proposed that the just-passed amendment also be amended to include the word sexual orientation. Well, Steve's amendment was soundly defeated by a voice vote that, though untabulated, sounded to me like 1,589 to 11. Then the liberty section was up for a vote. I dashed to a microphone wearing my Ellen Craswell hat and proposed this amendment. As respect for the rights of the individual are the bedrock of Republican values, the King County Republican Party hereby recognizes the fundamental human rights of gay and lesbian American citizens. We reject elements on the fringe of the Republican Party that would exploit fear and hatred of gay and lesbian American citizens for short-term political gain. Through the shouting, I pointed out that we King County Republicans can't have it both ways. We can't say in one breath that we oppose discrimination and with our next breath support discrimination against gay and lesbian American citizens. So let's vote on it. Do we, the Republicans of King County, recognize the fundamental rights of gay and lesbian American citizens, or do we not? Well, we do not. After some heated debate, the names I was called, pervert, sodomite, democrat, my amendment was voted down. After my amendment failed, a woman in a Craswell hat approached me. Why are you wearing that hat, she briskly inquired. Because I'm for Craswell. You know where she stands on gay things, don't you? Having recently had a conversation with Ellen herself, I most certainly did. But I'm not, I smilingly informed my new friend and fellow Craswell supporter, a single-issue voter. Try to imagine now that you're a homophobic Republican jerk-off, which might be a triple redundancy, at your county convention. You came for the speeches, an anti-Clinton t-shirt for your collection, and a hot dog. This is what you do for fun, woohoo. But these three guys keep introducing pro-gay rights amendments, moving to have anti-gay amendments struck, and generally messing with your afternoon. 
You didn't come to the convention to defend your party's homophobia, and you certainly didn't come expecting to listen to gay men giving speeches all day long. Who are these guys, and why is that one wearing a Craswell hat? Okay, you're this person, what do you do? You get mad. Very, very mad. One delegate decided to get even. In what can only be described as a David Lynch moment, a palsied delegate staggered up to the microphone and proposed a change in the rules. No further discussion of homosexuality allowed. His resolution needed a two-thirds majority to pass because it was a rules change, not a simple amendment, and pass it did, to hoots and hollers and cheers. But we had yet to vote on the education section, which contained a plank about homosexuality. When we got to education, all hell broke loose. Robert's Rules of Order fetishists leapt to their feet, insisting that the anti-gay plank in the education section would have to be struck. If we can't discuss homosexuality, we can't vote on it, for voting is a discussion. Uh-oh, we were talking about homosexuality again. People were booing, shouting, oh, the humanity. The chair, bringing the room to order, calmly ruled that the no further discussion resolution applied only to pro-gay discussions. We could discuss homosexuality, he said, but only if we weren't saying anything nice about it. And the convention limped to a close, most of the day having been wasted debating gay rights, gay marriage, what makes people gay, and my hat. What I learned. Here's what I learned about Republicans that weekend. They don't like homos very much. They certainly don't like having to talk about us, and they certainly like listening to us even less. But they do like beating up on us and their platforms. So King County Republicans, I'll make you a deal. Leave us out of your platform in 98, the next convention cycle, and I'll stay away from your convention. But if we're in the platform, I intend to return. Dan Savage writes the syndicated sex advice column Savage Love and is author of several books, most recently The Kid, What Happened After My Boyfriend and I Decided to Get Pregnant, an Adoption Story. Dan has continued his activism in the Republican Party. Most recently, he cast a vote in the Iowa Straw Poll for Steve Forbes. His account of that is online. You can link there from the This American Life website at www.thislife.org. Coming up, illegal aliens who agree that they should be deported, take matters into their own hands, and other unlikely stories. That's in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues.
This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program comes in the wake of the first Iowa presidential straw poll. With just 14 months left in the election season, we bring you election stories, hopefully to restore a sense of hope. All of them taken from election coverage we did on This American Life four years ago during the last big election cycle. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, Pete and Repeat. This is the story of an idealistic political movement which, like so many, began in California, the self-deportation movement. This was back on the air back around Election Day, 1996. Hey, Pedro, go back to Mexico. Stop taking our job and stop looking at my daughter. Immigrants, are you tired of being pushed around in America? Well, don't sit on your sarape. Do something about it. Join the conservative political action group, HALTO, Hispanics Against Liberal Takeover. I am the chairman of HALTO, Daniel Deportado. What is self-deportation, you ask? Think of it as a permanent vacation. Immigrants, join HALTO today and see your homeland tomorrow. Self-deportation is a trademark of Hispanics Against Liberal Takeover. Subject agrees to voluntarily repatriate to native land or Mexico, whichever is nearest. All self-deportations are final. No exchanges or refunds. Tickets are one way only. Autodeportación es una marca de hispanos contra liberales. Sujetos serán repatriados a su tierra natal o a México. Well, listeners to our program in California may be familiar with this advertisement and with the group Hispanics Against Liberal Takeover. They are a militant self-deportation movement encouraging all minorities to leave the United States. That's right, all minorities. Its founder, Daniel Deportado, has appeared on Spanish-language TV. I, I actually saw a video of one of these appearances where basically the, the entire Latino studio audience yelled at him nonstop for his entire appearance. Mr. Portado says that he started his movement when he read newspaper accounts about Mexican-Americans who were in favor of California's Proposition 187. Prop 187 was the proposition that cut off social services to illegal immigrants. He thought these Mexican-Americans who were in favor of cutting off those services had the right idea, but just did not go far enough. They just didn't, they just didn't take it to its logical conclusion, and he felt that self-deportation was the only real solution. We feel that the immigrants are taking uh, too many jobs, um, are bringing down the quality of life. Uh, they're not allowing uh, our young American teenagers the character-building uh, experiences of picking fruit and uh, cleaning uh, hotel beds. So what's your evaluation of this week's election results? Uh, were the election results in California good or bad for your self-deportation movement? Oh, well, um, luckily, uh, Pete Wilson is uh, still with us. Uh, of course, you know, I was the chairman of uh, originally of uh, Hispanics for Wilson, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Pro 187 group. Well, Proposition 187 was the uh, California proposition that suggested and passed um, saying that uh, – Illegal immigrants could not receive any social services. Right, right. And uh, we are also sponsoring uh, for the next uh, election the uh, our own initiative, the Spick and Span Initiative, uh, which uh, stands for uh, Stop Promoting Illegal Culture and Spanish. Uh, basically, we're uh, trying to prohibit uh, any sort of activity which might attract uh, illegals to this country, uh, such as uh, dancing the Macarena. Mm -hmm. uh, that will now be uh, punishable by uh, uh, four Saturdays of uh, freeway pickup, cleanup, and uh, a $250 fine. Pretty steep. 
and uh, also, uh, you know, saying uh, certain words or any word in Spanish, uh, such as uh, Los Angeles, California, San Diego. Uh, burrito. Burrito, yes, Enchirito, you know, uh, all these uh, traditional uh, things like uh, Linda Ronstadt records will now be banned. Those ones where she sings the Mexican songs. Yes, uh, the ones that she doesn't understand what she's singing, but it's it's very harmful, and it's like a a yodel out to the immigrants. It's it's saying, uh, "Are you out there? Is is there anyone out there? Would you like to come to America?" That's what basically Linda Ronstadt is saying. Well, you, when she sings a Spanish language song, you mean she is pulling people across the border with the power of her voice? Yes, it is a uh, major conspiracy. You did not know. The, Governor Wilson has discovered uh, that. Uh, there is a major conspiracy to get uh, all sorts of uh, Indios uh, from remote villages uh, to come over. I mean, when Clinton says it takes a village, I mean, he's talking about importing a whole village from Michoacan. Don't you know that? <laughs> um, so um, also we have discovered uh, uh, with the help of Governor Wilson that uh, the Macarena is actually a very sinister mind control device. And it is part of a conspiracy uh, to uh, control uh, the white electorate's uh, feeble mind. What do you mean? Is, how, how do you figure? What is it doing to the white electorate? Well, uh, we actually have uh, a translation here uh, by our uh, uh, researchers that we can uh, read for you. All right, sure. Th okay. These are the words to the Macarena? Yes. Sure. And so uh, my bodyguard, uh, Rudy Rico... Uh, we'll do the uh, translation in English, and I, I will read the original lyrics in uh, the soon-to-be-forbidden Spanish tongue. So here we go. Dale a tu cuerpo alegría macarena. I control your mind and body, gringo. Que tu cuerpo es para darle <laughs> alegría y cosa buena. Now it's time to pick the fruit and make me rich. Dale a tu cuerpo alegría macarena. Give me the keys to your Volvo, gringo. Eh, hey, Macarena. Eh, hey, stupid gringo. Macarena tiene un novio que se llama. See how foolish you look. Que se llama de apellido Vitorino. When you twist and dance to my mind control music. Y en la jura del bandera del muchacho. Screw the police. Se la dio con dos amigos. Now go cook some food for my friends. Macarena, Macarena, Macarena. Stupid gringo, stupid gringo, stupid gringo. So, uh, as you can see, uh, this is a very uh, sinister device. Daniel Deportado, um, if, if you actually believe in, in, in deportation, what are, what are you yourself still doing in California? Well, I am here uh, to help everyone get out. I hope to look forward to the day where I will stand at the border and say, uh, will the last Mexican please turn out of uh, California, please turn out the lights. And that will be me. Daniel Deportado, chairman of Hispanics Against Liberal Takeover. All right, folks. We all are worried about the coming election. But you know, folks... Act 4, throwing money at the problem. Well, back in 1996, when the Democratic Convention came to town here in Chicago, the city did a multi-million dollar cleanup for the convention along the routes between the downtown hotels and the United Center, the sports arena where the convention was held. Well, one night after the convention, I jumped in a cab with some other people, strangers, convention goers, 
and we sped up Monroe Street, them to their hotels, me back to the radio station. The moon was out, the air was perfect, the street was freshly paved, and a woman from Washington, D.C., a lobbyist who had attended the convention in a skybox, remarked, Chicago is so beautiful. There are no potholes, no homeless people, and the weather is so beautiful. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Chicago, but I have to say we do have our fair share of potholes, homeless people, and bad weather. I knew before this moment that money could not buy love, but I had no idea it could buy this level of misperception. This next story is about what all the cameras and all the political elite see in the neighborhoods they drive through and what they don't see. You may remember the best-selling book, There Are No Children Here, from a few years back. In it, writer Alex Kotlowitz described the lives of two brothers at the Henry Horner Homes. It was made into a TV film by Oprah Winfrey. It's been mentioned many times in speeches by Jack Kemp and by others. Well, Henry Horner is the public housing project that sits right across the street from the United Center, where the convention was held. And when Chicago did its multi-million dollar cleanup for the Democratic convention, it cleaned up some of Horner. The boys from Alex Kotlowitz's book are now young men, and they do not live at Horner anymore, though they go back now and then. And during the convention, we asked one of them, Pharaoh Walton, who was then 18, to give us a tour of what had changed at Horner because of the convention and what hadn't changed. And one of the most interesting things about his report is how much of the neighborhood had improved for political and legal reasons, for all sorts of reasons, that never entered our national political consciousness, that never became part of any discussion of what's going on in our cities, that never became part of the discussion of how things might be improved. So here, once again, is Pharaoh's story. When I left Henry Horner five years ago, it looked like a ghost town. No green grass, broken windows, graffiti everywhere. Now Henry Horner is a different place. There are rows of flowers outside the maintenance building and new windows in the office where my mother used to pay rent. There are trees, new elevators. Most of the changes are on the side of the buildings that face the United Center and on Washington Street, where the old Bernie School used to be. There's a new playground with a big lawn and a huge new blue and green jungle gym, nicer than any playground I've ever seen in the city, even on the north side, and everyone knows why. I know why they did it. Cause the president coming. And then they're going to be taking kids and they're going to be killing people. The president sold People say a lot of other things, too. And not all of them make sense. Like what Canoe Howe told me about the playground. The dinner class, the new convention coming, and nobody can't be outside until one has at 7 30. If you do, if you don't, you're going to be going to take it to the home, then get a doctor. There'll be a lot of police in our building and um, president police be in our building. People at Horner are glad about the physical changes, but most of them say they're mad that it took a president before the city will clean up a parking lot or plant a tree. Some things in Henry Horner have changed and some things are still the same, like shootings and hot days. When I was a kid, I would run in the house when the shooting started. Same with my nephew Snuggles and his friend Jeremy today. 
always trying to shoot on a hot day. We start gang banging when they're on the hot day. And then all the kids got to go in the house. Like two weeks ago, some girl got shot. She got shot in the eye. Probably dead now. She is dead. They be shooting all the time. Over there. Usually when you hear about the projects, you hear that things are bad and they're getting worse. But when I went to Horner, I heard a different story. There are still shootings, still drugs, and still gangs. But mostly people told me that things had slowed down. In 1991, the residents of Henry Horner filed a lawsuit against the city and won. Because of that, the Chicago Housing Authority is cleaning it up, renovating old apartments, putting in new elevators, tearing down the worst buildings. They've moved 233 families out of Horner since 1995 and installed 24-hour security guards. My friend Sylvia told me she feels safer. So it's, a, it's doing a lot better since 20 years it was looking around here, so crime don't stop a lot better, too. It ain't doing too much shooting or nothing, so that's good. Police around a little more, so that's better, too, since they uh, put that 90 cent up there because they've watched that a lot. Sylvia says police are always driving around the neighborhood since the United Center was built. Now, I visited my grandmother, and she said the same thing, that things are getting better. We sat in her apartment with gospel music on the radio and a preacher on the television, and she told me about life in Horner now. But it's not too bad around here. I never read about nothing happening around here, like somebody getting killed and a guy got shooting. It's not too bad. I walk out, out this house every day and those uh, lights be out. I have to take a flashlight, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Of course, I got God first of all. God forbid. God forbid. One of the things that the president and the delegates at the convention won't see when they look at Horner from across the United Center parking lot is the Boys and Girls Club. Physically, the Boys and Girls Club hasn't changed since I was little. Old pool tables, a basketball court, center block wall, is not in great shape. I talked to the grandfather of the community, Major Adam. He's worked at the Boys and Girls Club for 40 years. Everybody knows him and everybody respects him. Kids will listen to Major before they listen to teachers, or parents, or even the police. He's the only person at Horner who can walk into the middle of a gang fight and make it stop. In fact, he's famous for jumping into the middle of fights. And Major would be the first person to tell you about all the fights he stopped. He was going to jump on eight guys with these three knives. I didn't know he had three knives, but he had one in his hand. He was going to get these guys. So I had to grab this guy and take this knife away from him. While the guy came out there, 12 was jumping on one guy, and it made me so mad. I said, well, look. I'm going to take all 12 of you guys, one at a time. And I take them one at a time, and I walk all 12 of them. I'm going to do it by myself. I picked them up and throw them over the fence. I'm telling you. you Some people say the neighborhood is safer because over 200 families moved out. There are fewer people to get in trouble or shoot each other. My friend Sylvia says people have less time to fool around because the housing authority is hiring residents to do construction and clean a place up. Another friend of mine says people are getting their acts together because now the city is kicking people out and tearing buildings down, and they don't want to lose their homes. The way Major sees it, 
The neighborhood is better because there are people in Horner who are trying to make a difference. I'll tell you, crime have went, went down in our neighborhood, this neighborhood, because uh, you have a guy like me working in the neighborhood. When you walk in here, a lot of them gangbangers just came I fed them. So it's a lot, a lot of things I do for them. I let them play basketball. I, when they want to go back to school, I see that they go back to school. They go to jail. I send them money and stuff like that. Like my Aunt Millie says, you can't beautify the outside when the inside ain't right. Major is working hard to beautify the inside. main room at the Boys and Girls Club, there's a trophy case. Inside there are all the trophies won by Horner baseball teams, basketball teams, and football teams. And pinned to the back of the trophy case, there are pictures of Horner residents who've made something of their lives, who've gotten out of the projects, went on to do great things. All three of those young men up there are teachers. They grew up in the area. Those three up there? Yeah, those three there. And this is Dr. Stephen Parker, at Chicago State. Uh, that's Verdine from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Then he pointed out a blank spot and asked me for a picture. His way of saying he knew I was going to make it. Oh, this American Life is produced by Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, Blue Chevney, Julie Snyder, Nancy Updike, and me. Tributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, Elise Spiegel, and Concierge Sarah Val. Production help from Todd Bachman and Starley Kynes. Some work in today's show was produced by Peter Clowney and Elise Spiegel. Musical help today from John Connors, Steve Cushing, and Anahid Alani. Special thanks today to Lalo Lopez and Esteban Sul of Pocho Productions for setting up our interview with Daniel De Portalo. If you'd like to buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or you know you can listen to most of our programs for absolutely free on the Internet at our website, www.thislife.org. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs our site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com. The books and music that you hear on This American Life are available at Amazon.com there are 4.7 million video, CD, and book titles online at www.amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, from the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, and from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who is worrying about the effects of this radio show. It's very harmful, and it's like a, a yodel out to the immigrants. I'm Ira Glass, back next week for more stories of this American life. It's saying, are you out there? Is, is there anyone out there? Would you like to come to America? PRI, Public Radio International.